beautiful light bulb souls. This is Trisha Barker. Thank you so much for your attendance at the second annual online near-death experience summit. If you missed it this Sunday, there will be a replay link to purchase through the University of Heaven, and I will leave that link below. Also, thank you to everyone who has purchased my book, either through Audible or ebook or paperback. It means so much to hear from readers and to hear your journey with spirituality and with healing and with some of the issues that my book brings up in education and in other walks of life. But thank you so much for listening to this podcast. This is a remake of some of my YouTube videos that I've uploaded to the podcast format because I know that many people do enjoy not using data and listening to podcasts. So it's great to connect with you and may you be blessed. Hello, beautiful light-filled souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I am so excited to be here with Robert Schwartz, the author of Your Soul's Plan and Your Soul's Gift. And you can find a lot of great information on his website, yoursoulsplan.com. I have a course that I want you to check out too. My friend Daniel Garreau and his wife Sylvie Garreau are teaching a course on Zoom at the end of this month on opening to intuition, and I'm happy to be hosting that and working with them. So the reason why I'm so excited about interviewing you, Robert, is I do have some pre-birth memories and some information that I brought back from a couple of different lives. and. This was enhanced after my near-death experience, so I know that you spoke at IANS, and just as a general introduction, could you tell me what uh, you think the connection is between your work and the work of IANS and the connection with near-death experiences? Well, as you just mentioned, uh, people sometimes come back from near-death experiences with information about pre-birth memories and, and information about their pre-birth planning. Uh, so that's certainly one connection. And then the more general connection is that uh, the people who have had NDEs, as you know, are spiritually awake. They understand that they're eternal souls who are temporarily in a physical body. Uh, and the people who are interested in pre-birth planning are also very spiritually awake. So I think there, there's a lot of overlap between the two audiences. Yes, I think there is too. And I think that, uh, I think you wrote somewhere, and I wrote this down because I really liked it, but the releasing of karma can happen instantly when the soul realizes that the nature of its own being is pure divinity, one with spirit. And I certainly came back from my near-death experience and felt like all my karma had been erased and mm. I was this new vibrating being of just pure light. I mean, that's that's how I felt, especially in those first few years, almost like a newborn. But it's beautiful to think that this happens for people too, you know, that they don't have to die necessarily to yeah. to have this release of karma. And have you seen that in your work? Have you seen people come to these realizations of just pure bliss? Well, my, my understanding of karma is that it's essentially a feeling of incompletion in regard to a previous experience. Uh, the uh, hypothetical I like to use is, suppose the two people had a past life together in which one was ill and the other was the person's caregiver. When those two people transition back to the other side at the end of that lifetime, they have their life review, as we all do. And when they see the caregiving relationship, they may or may not feel complete with it. And may is the key word there. 
they decide for themselves we're complete with this experience or we're not. As I understand it, if they feel complete with the experience, then they are actually complete with the experience and there's no karma there. But if they feel incomplete with it, the feeling of incompletion is the karma. And so in that case, they would want to balance the karma. Uh, and there would be any number of ways to do that. The simplest and easiest and most direct way would be to simply trade places. So the one who is ill would plan the life challenge of caregiving. The one who is the caregiver would plan the life challenge of illness. That is basically the understanding that I have. And I want to get into some of the work that you do because I looked at your website and I saw that you do uh, work to take people back to pre-birth planning and to past life regression. I have felt on my own, so I have been regressed once, but I've had this moment where I felt, and it was like maybe a year ago, I felt that I was transcending the goal that I had in that past life. Like I was finally breaking through some barrier and I felt like, wow, from this point forward, everything is new, you know, like this is uncharted territory. You know, I came back to break through this one block and then I did it. And that's an exciting feeling, but it's also an incredibly freeing place uh, to be. Do you think that that happens a lot with the work? I mean, is that something that you see people do as they realize their plan and then they make a breakthrough at some point? That certainly happens. Uh, Also, the opposite happens where people are not able to complete what they planned. Uh, And the important thing to understand about that is that there's no judgment on the soul level. The soul simply has a feeling of incompletion and the soul's attitude is, let's continue, let's try again. But there's no judgment in not fulfilling the pre-birth plan. Yeah, yeah, that is an interesting point because there's always another life (laughs) to come back to and and keep working on it. So I do want to, for those who are listening and maybe are not familiar with your work, I do want to get to kind of the basic of your soul's plan. So I see it as, and I think you've said this in different places, free will connects with maybe some important points that are made in the plan. But if you raise your vibration to a certain level, maybe you don't have to live through certain things or, you know, like there are just some things that are definitely set, some that are not. Could you explain a little bit more of that? Yeah, when we talk about there being a life plan, uh, it does not mean that everything is set in stone. For the most part, a pre-birth plan means that something is planned as a potential perhaps even a probability, perhaps even a very high probability. There are very, very few things that are certainties. An example of a certainty would be something like your choice of parents. Obviously, once you're born, you can't change who your parents are. Or if you plan, for example, to have a handicap that medical science can't treat, and you would know that before coming to body, then short of what we would call a miracle, you will have that physical handicap. But the vast majority of things are not certainties like that. They're planned as possibilities or probabilities. And then whether or not the possibility or probability actualizes depends upon your free will decisions. So you come into the incarnation wanting to learn certain things. And if you make free will choices that allow you to learn those things, then very often the plan challenges don't need to happen. And you used mediums who sound incredibly interesting, fascinating to discover a lot of different elements about pre-birth planning. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Like what were their specialized skills? I know one channeled Jesus and others were right. great at talking about pre-birth planning. 
So between the two books, Your Soul's Plan and Your Soul's Gift, there are six mediums and channels who are my collaborators. Uh, one of them uh, has a, a very unusual gift. She hears the conversations we have with each other before we're born. So in working with her, I could actually go into people's pre-birth planning sessions, and we heard them talking to their future parents, children, friends, romantic partners, enemies if they were planning to have enemies, and I put those conversations verbatim into the books. Another one of the mediums is very gifted at talking with the deceased. So if I was interviewing somebody for one of the books whose life challenge involved someone who's now back on the other side, we would work with her, bring in that person, and ask them directly, what did you plan with this other person and why? Uh, a third medium uh, is very gifted at channeling somebody's soul, somebody's higher self. That gave me the opportunity to speak with higher selves directly and again ask what was planned and why. Uh, in the first book, Your Soul's Plan, there's a fourth colleague who has now returned to the other side. She was very gifted at channeling angels some of whom serve as guides to people once they're in body. So I could speak to the angels directly and ask what was planned and why. Now, in Your Soul's Gift, the second book, there are two new colleagues. One, you mentioned, channels Jesus. And some of those channelings are, I think, among the best that I've ever seen anywhere. The level of love and wisdom that he brings through is just remarkable. And there's another channel in Your Soul's Gift who channels uh, an enlightened ascended master named Aaron, Aaron has access to the Akashic Record. The Akashic Record, as probably many of your viewers know, is the complete non-physical record of everything relevant to the Earth plane, including the pre-birth planning. So in talking with Aaron, he could go into the Akashic Record and retrieve a person's plan. So I'm curious, what do you think was one of the most loving and healing statements that Jesus brought to a situation? So whether it was with an enemy or a terrible situation or someone was grieving something what what was the big flip that you saw for someone well the single most healing piece of information I have seen in all the years I've been doing this work is in one of the channelings with Jesus in your soul's gift in the suicide chapter and the story here is a, a woman named Carolyn whose only child a son named Cameron takes his life shortly after graduating from high school he actually hangs himself in their home from a rafter in the attic, and Carolyn, his mother, finds him and has to cut the rope and bring the body down. Now, she and I worked with uh, the channel in the Netherlands who channels Jesus, and he comes in at the beginning of the channeling session and says that suicide is not planned as a certainty, but it is planned as a possibility or a probability, or sometimes a probability so high as to be almost certain and he says that was the case with this boy, Cameron. He brought back into body unhealed energies for the purpose of healing them. And he knew pre-birth that this was going to cause severe depression and anxiety, making a suicide very, very likely. But he was ambitious and wanted to take on this big challenge. So while I was working on the suicide chapter, I came across uh, another book in which there was some channeled information about suicide. And this channeled information seemed to suggest that every suicide that could have been prevented was prevented. And let me explain how that could be. In this particular channeling, it was suggested that if a suicidal person has the slightest openness or willingness to change their mind, spirit knows and spirit stages an intervention. 
the implication of that is that every suicide that could have been prevented was prevented. So I share this with Jesus in the channeling session, and I say to him, is it true that every suicide that could have been prevented was prevented? Because if that is true, this would do wonders to relieve the guilt and self-blame people feel when a loved one takes their own life. And he says, quote, every suicide preventable by outside forces was indeed prevented. So he confirms that this is in fact the case. So what that means for your listeners who have lost a loved one to suicide, there was literally nothing you could have done to prevent it. Because again, if the suicidal person had the slightest openness or willingness to change their mind, spirit would have known and spirit would have staged an intervention. So I would say to anybody watching who lost a loved one to suicide, take any guilt or self-blame you may feel and set it down and step away from it because there was literally nothing you could have done. And I don't mind staying on this topic for a bit because it is an important one. And occasionally listeners even post comments below my videos about feeling suicidal because I've talked about this topic and it's such an important one. Like reaching out on YouTube is, is important, but I always tell people reach out to everyone around you. You have no idea all the different threads and lines of support that are available to us. And that's something I saw in my near-death experience because I had a suicide attempt before my near-death experience. It wasn't the cause of my near-death experience, but I saw it in my life review and I just saw that I had choices. I had so many um, availabilities to be open to this neighbor or this friend or this person. And so, yes, it's important to post a comment below a video, but it's maybe more important to reach out to everyone in your world and realize our oneness and, and our connection if you're feeling down like that. But for people who have lost someone, that is incredibly comforting. I lost a boss and I actually did go back and, and look many times and think, maybe I should have just gone to his house and, you know, tried to talk with him. And so there is that natural guilt that I think people carry around that. Yeah, I completely agree. But, but again, uh, as Jesus tells us in this channeling, every suicide that could have been prevented was in fact prevented. So if there's nothing that you could have done about it, uh, there's no need to feel guilty or to blame yourself. Yeah, that that little openness is available. It's funny, like maybe a month ago, there was a guy on a bridge here in town and he was climbing over the bridge about to jump and I had a big space to park. So I parked my car and I got out and talked with him and called for authorities to get there. And then I thought, I wonder if someday he's going to look back and think I was this random person, you know, like an angel or something who, who showed up in that moment. But I was real, you know, like I, I saw it. I was like, oh, my God, I've got to stop. And all these cars passed. But I think it's important for other people to keep their eyes open and, and their awareness, too, and to not be blind to the world and the energies around them because we do have an effect and we can help others. That's right. Absolutely. Um that that topic is a tough one but so is mental illness in general too and you write about that and your soul's gift what could you tell me a little bit more about why souls choose a like borderline personality or narcissistic personality we're talking about these things all the time um on social media now but could you add a different well, the, perspective sure the the story in your soul's gift in the mental illness chapter is about a woman who Starting very early on in life, uh, early teens, if I remember correctly, she experienced a, an unusual form of psychosis in which 
she would have a, a nightmare while she was asleep. But then when she would wake up in the morning, the nightmare would continue and would seem to be real, as though it were actually happening in her room at that moment. So, for example, if she dreamed that a, a monster was trying to kill her, when she woke up in the morning, she would actually see that monster in the room trying to kill her. And this went on for several decades. Uh, as you can imagine, her suffering was just immense, more beyond anything most of us can really imagine. So we asked uh, Jesus what, what is happening here. And he tells us that uh, there are several other uh, parallel selves of this woman in parallel dimensions. And she is actually processing unhealed energies on behalf of them. And to the extent that she's able to do this, it brings healing not only to her, but also to her parallel selves in the other dimensions. So it was essentially a form of service that she agreed to take on on behalf of her soul before coming into body. Wow, very fascinating. Um, the other thing that I want to ask, so is, has anyone ever been completely healed, do you think, by um, from a mental illness, you know, in a moment of recognition of the light and divinity? Have you seen that occur for people? I have not seen that in my research for the books, but I have no doubt that that happens. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I'll post a link to a video of my students. We're watching a Teach English, and we're just watching a video about classifying different types of mental illness as a way to look at classification. And the woman said that rarely, but every so often, the narcissistic personality disorder will break open, and that person will realize their connection with the world and will start to feel empathy and will change. And it's not anything to like hope for, but you know, occasionally it happens. And I thought, oh no, that's like the wrong thing to tell people in a way, <laughs> you know, to yeah. hope for this impossible thing. But it almost seems as if a great spiritual aware awareness can bring that to pass sometimes. Well, you know, if you think about what healing is. Uh, in my view, all abiding healing, by which I mean enduring healing, is accomplished through an increase in vibration. So uh, how you increase your vibration doesn't really matter. It only matters that you do. And if you have a near-death experience and you come to understand that you're an eternal divine being and that knowledge raises your vibration, you can have the kind of breakthrough that you're describing. And it can come in a number of other ways, too. Yeah, so you do have a beautiful chapter on healing, and that seems to be the main purpose for a lot of challenges that people bring in. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Healing is one of the five main reasons I found for planning challenges before birth. And I'll, I'll share a story from the first book, Your Soul's Plan, just to illustrate this. There's a chapter in Your Soul's Plan about the pre-birth planning of deafness and blindness. And the deafness story is a young African-American woman named Penelope. She was 24 at the time I interviewed her for the book. Penelope was born completely deaf in both ears. We worked with the medium who was able to go into the pre-birth planning sessions. And when we did that, and I should explain here, the, the way we did this because of Penelope's deafness, the session was conducted on the internet on Instant Messenger. So Penelope is in her home typing on IM, I'm doing the same thing, and the medium is doing the same thing. Well, the medium goes into Penelope's pre-birth planning session, and what we find out is that in the lifetime immediately prior to this one, Penelope had the same mother she has in this lifetime. 
But in that past life, when she was a little girl, she heard the mother shot to death by the mother's boyfriend. Now, she didn't actually see the murder, but she heard the gunshots that led to her mother's death. And as you can imagine, she was quite traumatized by that, so much so that it led her to take her own life later in that incarnation. So she returned to spirit with what you could call an energy of unhealed trauma, which now needs to be healed. In her pre-birth planning session, her guide says to her, my dear, would you prefer to be born deaf so that no similar trauma will happen to you again and so that you can complete your healing from the last lifetime? And she responds, yes, that is what I want and what I wish to do. And then what ensues is a fascinating discussion between Penelope and her guide in which they work out the details of her deafness. Hmm. Very, very interesting. So I want to get to relationships and how people plan certain relationships on the other side, whether it's parents or why would someone choose to be an abusive parent or to be abused by a parent? So what, uh, what is one of the reasons why? Well, I'll speak from personal experience. I grew up in that kind of family. And uh, my understanding is that there were a number of motivations, but one was to deepen in compassion. This is a very, very common type of pre-birth plan. It, it's what I refer to as the learning through opposites plan. The soul learns best through opposites, meaning that whatever it is you want to learn by coming into a particular incarnation, if you put yourself in circumstances in which you will experience the opposite of what you want to learn, it's intended to give you both the opportunity and the motivation to learn whatever it is you came to learn. So with compassion, if I choose to incarnate in a family in which I'm treated with a lack of compassion, which certainly was the case, that is intended to drive me inward where I will develop, hopefully, self-compassion. And then once I've developed that, the life plan calls for me to take that compassion and turn it outward in service to others later in my lifetime. And that is what I've done through the, the books that I've written, the workshops that I teach, uh, the private hypnosis sessions. Uh, I would like to believe that I'm taking the compassion I uh, earlier developed in this lifetime for myself and am now offering it to others. And the hardest component, I came from one of those families too, mm. and the hardest component, but one that comes, I think, later in life is even compassion for them. I saw a movie called mm. August Osage County, and I saw the generations in this this particular movie, and you see the youngest generation, the middle generation, and then the, the grandparents. And when the grandmother in that movie tells a story about her childhood, it just, it's so raw and so horrible and so deep that when you hear it, you think she's a saint in comparison to what she went yeah. through to her children and that, you know, each, each generation, it has been a little bit better. There's been a wish or a hope, I think, to be better than the generation before. And that gave me some compassion, you know, for what I went through. And then, of course, as I got older and realized my mother was 19 when she had me and you know, what do 19 year olds know about anything? <laughs> you know, right. And right. it, I think there is like this added layer of generational compassion and just letting go at some point. Um, but certainly, you know, you can go different ways with that. You can experience a trauma and become hard and, you know, materialistic, or you can open up and just be so compassionate to all the other people in the world who have suffered. And so, that openness to the world is a beautiful way to live. 
Yeah, and you know, when you talk about people hardening in response to those kind of circumstances, a pattern that I have seen again and again in my work is that if you are not responding to the life challenge, whatever it may be, in the way that you had hoped before you came into body, the challenge tends to come back around. And it tends to come back around in increasingly intense form each time. When I interviewed people for my two books, it was interesting that the people who experienced this all had the same catchphrase to describe it. They all said, the universe kept hitting me over a head with the cosmic two by four. And that's the pattern that they were referring to when they said that. Isn't that interesting? You know, that, um, but I think people can go a couple of different ways. They can become hardened and angry and then, you know, keep getting the lesson. They can also become very victimized. And I think you write about this too. They're, those are both kind of low energies, but I've certainly seen people who say their spouse cheated on them and, you know, then they're, they're free again and they're like, they hold on to that and they're such a victim and they want everyone to cater to their wounds and, oh I've been through so much when someone else might have been through far worse <laughs> you know, not that that's not a terrible thing but I'm just saying you know like there are far worse traumas that someone else might get over and be in the state of loving and giving and healing and so yeah there, there are many different responses to trauma well, it's interesting you mentioned victim consciousness because one of the primary intentions of my, my work is to help people pull themselves out of victim consciousness simply by coming into the awareness that you are the powerful soul who planned your challenges. Even if you don't know why you planned them, the simple knowledge that you planned them pulls you out of victim consciousness. Victim consciousness, as I understand it, is literally the single lowest frequency or vibration a human being can be at. And it tends to be self-perpetuating because when you believe yourself to be a victim, you are you're vibrating at the frequency of victim. And when you vibrate at the frequency of victim, you're energetically stating to the universe that you are a victim. Well, whatever energetic statement you make to the universe, the universe always responds in exactly the same way. It always says, yes, that's right, you are. So if you state energetically to the universe that you're a victim, it says, yes, you are a victim. And then it brings you more experiences that seem on the surface to confirm that you are a victim. The way to break out of that negative self-perpetuating cycle is simply to come into the awareness that you planned your biggest challenges. And then if you also come into some understanding of why you plan them, that's actually even better because then you can go about learning the lessons in a more conscious and presumably less painful manner. Beautiful. And so just for listeners, I'm just, this is experimental, but I just thought of it as you were talking. So if a listener had, you know, one of these many traumas, and most everyone has some trauma that they've endured or, or they're trying to get over, they're still working through, if they held that in their consciousness and they're looking at it, it's, it's my understanding that it's better to go into it, examine it, feel everything, even if it's anger. I think you write about that too. And then there's this moment of release at some point as you go into it. Could, I know you write about this in depth. Could you talk more about that experience of release? Yeah, there's an old saying that I'm sure many of your viewers have heard that in order to heal it, you have to feel it. And I think that is true. You know, emotions are energy, or as some people say, energy in motion. And if you don't allow the emotions or the energy to move through you, it gets lodged in the cells of the body, and if that happens enough times over a long enough time period, it turns into physical illness. Now, I think uh, there is sometimes uh, an understanding that 
in order to feel it and release it, you want to immerse yourself in the pain. And that actually was my understanding much earlier on when I was doing starting this work. But in discussing this very topic with uh, Jesus, uh, what he has explained to me is that uh, trying to call up the pain in, in a conscious effort to immerse yourself in it uh, is actually unproductive and unnecessary. And what he recommends basically is just mindfulness, presence. When painful emotions arise, simply observe them. The act of observing them dissipates the energy. So it's actually not necessary to try to do a special exercise and summon up the past pain. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, I see my life as a progression, and I think I went through stages where I lived out grief in various ways and, you know, dramatic ways where I had my angry phase and my mourning phase and my acceptance phase. Now I'm getting much quicker where I think I use some of that mindfulness, but I also call in the power of God, you know, to be there with me in that moment. And I swear that the energy of that light can transform things very quickly, you know, like very quickly. Do you find, do you believe that healing is accelerating for people and that's a message that's important? I think that's what these times are all about. I think we have come into this particular lifetime with a very, very full agenda. And people are trying to wrap up all the loose ends from all the past lives. And that's why it's such an intense lifetime for so many people. And the reason that we're doing this work is that as many of your viewers I'm sure know, the planet is going through an ascension process. So all of these old heavy energies need to be processed in order for the planet to ascend. And we're doing that work on behalf of Gaia, the consciousness of Earth. Yeah, I interviewed Dorothy Rowe, a healer, and in one of her webinars, we sent healing energy to Mother Earth, and that was a really lovely moment, but that makes a lot of sense. I've often felt, and I say this laughingly, but it may be true, I feel that I have like thousands of years of, you know, females who have been, you know, uh, put down and, you know, repressed, and their voices have been repressed in different ways, so that now when I feel like I speak, I'm, I'm speaking for thousands of years of women, and I know that sounds dramatic, but, you know, it, it really feels like it's true on some level. I, I think that that's the kind of work that many, many people are doing in this lifetime. Yeah, it's so interesting. So... I want to pull out some more of the topics in your book, um, Your Soul's Gift, and I loved what you said about abusive parents and that healing that occurs and that giving of compassion to the world. You also wrote, I think somewhere, about rape and that the soul has an expression of love and of non-love and of many different things. Could you say a little bit more about that topic? Yeah, what you're referring to comes from uh, the channelings with Jesus in the second book, Your Soul's Gift. And what he explains is that uh, the soul is not all love and light. The soul is a combination of light and darkness, and it's very much interested in purifying or clarifying, meaning moving from that mixture of light and dark to greater light. And so we're planning all of these very difficult challenges or scripting quote-unquote negative roles for other people in our lives to do this, to release the, the darkness that's in the soul and move it to a position of greater light. 
Yeah, that is so um, interesting. And that's actually how in my near-death experience, I saw some souls were pretty light-filled. They had a pretty deep connection, you know, to the light and others, it was a mixture. Some were quite dark, you know, but the darkness seemed to be mostly fear. Uh, is that how you see the darkness or do you see it as a combination of other things or absence of, of uh, good qualities? I think fear is a large part of it. It's an absence of light. Uh, I think past emotional trauma, past emotional pain is part of it. Um, but certainly here on, on the earth plane, fear is a predominant form of darkness. And to a large extent, what everybody is doing on the earth plane is learning how to uh, master fear or respond skillfully to fear. Yeah, and moving from fear to love, for me, part of my story, you know, I had a near-death experience and then I also was raped in a foreign country and I did not understand why in the world I would have this amazing spiritual experience and this horrific experience, but I realized really quickly that my connection to the women in South Korea was one of love because many of them shared their stories of what they had gone through and then my connection to anyone who had been raped or experienced this in any country or you know as a foreigner in a country so i think of our own country and people who are legal and maybe raped and they don't have that legal recourse you know in in this country how how traumatic that is and how that doesn't get enough attention that uh, people can be abused when they don't have citizenship or when they are you know, in a foreign land. And so I think it increased my awareness to the world and problems in the world and that particular issue. I don't know if it was a soul plan. It was certainly uh, a dramatic moment that moved me into greater love for this planet. And so I think that the quicker people can get to that, the better. Does that often happen in regressions? Do you find people getting pretty quickly to, ah, uh, okay, here's the reason why? That, that is the whole purpose of what I would call a between-lives soul regression, also known as an LBL or life between-lives regression. Basically what happens in a between-lives soul regression is that we go through a number of uh, preliminary relaxation steps, mental relaxation, physical relaxation, and those culminate uh, in me guiding the client into a short past lifetime. We don't spend a lot of time there. Uh, it's usually a lifetime that had a major impact on the plan for the current lifetime. When that lifetime ends, the client's consciousness leaves the body at the end of the past life and transitions back over to the other side, which I understand might sound a little bit nominous, but there's actually nothing to it, and probably everybody listening to this interview has done it hundreds of times. When the person gets back to the other side, most people are greeted by a guide. They talk to the guide briefly about why they were shown that particular past life and how it affected the plan for the current lifetime. And then we ask their guide to escort them to what is called the Council of Elders. The Council consists of the very wise, loving, and highly evolved beings who oversee reincarnation on Earth. They know everything about the client, not just the plan for the current lifetime, but every past life as well. So when someone gets in front of the council, this is potentially a transformative experience because the council can answer literally any question the person puts to them. Now, the people who are coming to me for Between Life Soul Regression, for the most part, they've read one of the books or both of the books. They want to know uh, what they planned and why they made those plans. And in particular, they want to know why they planned the most challenging things that have happened to them. The council can explain those decisions in tremendous, tremendous detail. 
And that results in healing for the client because now instead of perhaps being angry or feeling victimized, uh, now they understand the higher reason for what they planned. Uh, it involves a lot of forgiveness, both self-forgiveness and forgiveness of others. It helps people get to a place of gratitude for the challenges where, as perhaps in the past, uh, they would never even have conceived that it would be possible to be grateful for the challenges. So it can really change a person's life in very dramatic ways. Interesting. And, you know, we can just assume that we planned for that to happen, so. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. That sounds healing in, in many ways to get yeah. to that place of understanding. Yeah. Um, my next question, and I really wanted to get to this, is um, hmm, service to others. So you say that that's a main, main focus of many souls that are coming in. And that was one of my messages in the afterlife was certainly oneness, but that we look back and our moments where we have reached out to someone in a beautiful way, and it, it may seem even somewhat insignificant. You know, you just smile at someone who's having a really bad day and they just feel a little bit lighter in energy, that all types of service is so important. Yeah, service to others is one of the five main reasons, uh, along with healing, that uh, people plan their biggest challenges before they're born. And the way I conceptualize the orientation towards service is that uh, when we're on the other side, as I understand it, we're in a state of oneness consciousness. So you would perceive, for example, that I am literally you, and I would perceive that you are literally me. We're all aspects of the one. So in that kind of consciousness, I think the orientation towards service is just a natural expression of it. If you perceive that I'm you, of course, you want to be of service to me. If I perceive that you are me, then, of course, I want to be of service to you. The component of service to others is something I have seen in literally every single pre-birth plan I've ever looked at. It's always there in some form or shape or to one degree or another. I have never seen a pre-birth plan that did not have that. You know, I've found that I'm happier when I am in service to others. I don't know if you've felt this as well, but I try to explain to anyone who suffers from depression or who is getting over any grief that the minute I am really working for someone else's benefit, it's like the light is rushing through me and I'm no longer me. So I think it, it must be a huge component of pre-birth planning that um, we're more in touch with who our essential nature when we're of service. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I have the same experience that you just described with the work that I do. I actually used to be in the corporate sector and for the earlier part of my life was very focused on making as much money as I could because that's what my parents taught me. I grew up in a family that valued that form of accomplishment, but it never felt genuine to me. In fact, I always felt that I was not doing what I came here to do. I just didn't know what that was. And so I went along doing what I had been conditioned to do until finally, I think my guides got through to me and I made some changes. And now what I do is much, much more gratifying. And when you say your guides got through to you, do you mean that you started listening to them or you think that they brought people into your path or a combination or? Well, you know, the first time I became aware of my guides, and I can only say this in retrospect, I didn't know at the time it was them. When I was in my mid-30s, I suddenly, just out of the blue, developed 
this interest in near-death experiences of all things. And I started reading books written by people who had had NDEs. That was my entree into spirituality. And in retrospect, it's very clear to me that my guides were nudging me to read these books. And then as I read those over a period of years, one thing led to another. And eventually I just left the corporate sector and started working on my first book. Hmm. Interesting that near-death experiences do yeah. open people up sometimes, yeah. the accounts of them. And when you begin to have an awareness of your guides, did you see them or did you hear messages or what What was that like for you? Uh, occasionally I, I would hear a message which sounded to me like my own thought, but there was just something slightly qualitatively different about it and I came to understand that it was my guides. The first message I recall ever hearing from them was you have to ask and they were saying that in regard to asking for help. In other words telling me we're here to help you but you have to ask. Uh, that was the first message and then there have been many more over the years. Right, and do you feel that they were guiding you to write that first book, like that was part of their their guidance? Uh, it has to be the case, because the, the book that I wrote is so far removed from who I used to be and the background I came from. For me to get to that book on my own, I, I think would be virtually impossible. Yeah, yeah. I. I had heard of people having a council of guides or, you know, that, that type of thing, but it wasn't until I made my first YouTube video, which I thought, you know, this would be all that I would do was simply just put out my near-death experience story because people, people obsessively watch those, you know, they, they're really looking for answers and I know that they're needed on YouTube. So I thought, all right, I'll just put mine out in my own words. But I was a little afraid to do that, afraid of the comments and, you know, just being out publicly. And I felt my counsel just there. And they're like, no, we're with you and you have to do this. This is incredibly important. You know, every story reaches the person that it's meant to reach sure. and it adds the piece that it's meant to add to their lives. And so I knew and I felt them very incredibly an incredibly strong way so I think they do show up at certain times that are pivotal and that must have been a pivotal time for you you know the story that you're sharing makes me think of the time in my life when I chose to leave the corporate sector and I was living in Chicago at the time and I moved to Ashland Oregon where I wrote my first book and I moved there sight unseen I had never been to Ashland Oregon before and what happened was uh, I was receiving the email newsletter uh, of Gary Zukov and uh, he had listed that he in his newsletter he was looking for a personal assistant and I thought oh this would be interesting work and so I clicked on the link and it led me to pictures of Ashland Oregon where he lives and I looked at these pictures and I, I thought to myself I, I know this place I feel like I've been there even though I had never been there in this lifetime and I didn't understand this at the time, but looking back on it now, my understanding is that I must have been shown scenes of Ashland, Oregon in my pre-birth planning session, and that's why it looked so familiar to me. Oh, very interesting. That's, yeah. That's incredible. Hmm. So, in your book, Your Soul's Gift, there are so many different topics, and I'm going to ask about this one only because a couple of different near-death experiencers have brought it up. Howard Storm brought it up and another man who I interviewed who's a near-death experiencer, but their perspectives on miscarriage and abortion. Um, so would you mind sharing what you found? 
very simply that this miscarriages and abortions are planned before birth uh, through mutual agreement by all the souls involved. Uh, it, it's as simple as that, basically. And a lot of people have strong reactions to that, men and women. You know, there are men who have been dating someone or married to someone who chose to have an abortion and they've carried, you know, like guilt and they felt a death and they felt, you know, so traumatized by that. And there are women who, you know, are very much against abortion and that's like the single issue for them and voting and life. And and what do you say to to people who are who feel so strongly about that topic? Well, you know, I have no desire to convince someone that they shouldn't be opposed to miscarriage or abortion. Uh, as I understand it, th that attitude is common among younger souls. And I, I'm saying younger uh, just in factual terms. It's not a, a term of disrespect in any way. Uh, I think, you know, as souls mature, they come into the sense that a soul is an eternal being and cannot be killed. So from that perspective, that changes everything in regard to miscarriage or abortion. But if I believed that a soul could be killed, I would probably be anti-abortion myself. Right, right. And I didn't write about this in my book, but I have had a miscarriage. And I felt that the experience, the soul was just there to love me for a short time and just there to shift my energy in some way and to show me a different way of, of accessing my own childlike ability again. and and that it came there just for that purpose, just to give me love in a dark time. And it can be as simple as that, that a miscarriage might simply be there to shift someone's energy or teach them something. And that's what I felt from that soul. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Or perhaps, you know, a soul is agreeing to be uh, miscarried or aborted because they, they simply want to touch into the earth plane for the shortest period of linear time. Maybe they've never been here before and all they're seeking is just to, to touch the earth plane briefly. Yeah, there is a, a book that uh, was written by Joyce Carol Oates and I think it's so fascinating but she did a, a brief talk on it but she begins with a man who believes that God is speaking to him and he blows up an abortion clinic. So the first part of the book is his perspective then it's that doctor's family and, and all the people who lost him and how they loved him and then the book ends with all these women and all the different reasons why they chose abortion. You know, they were in an abusive relationship. Their body couldn't handle it. You know, they couldn't, I mean, just all the many reasons to where you, you have compassion for every single human being in the book, the way she, she delineates it. And I thought, you know, that is taking that kind of godlike perspective and looking down into all these lives and going, I love them all, you know, every single one. Well, that, that, that. I was just going to say, you know, when when we judge others, we we don't have sufficient information to do that. The only way you could accurately judge somebody else is if you had complete and perfect information about the person, including complete and inf perfect information about the pre-birth plan. Well, nobody has that information about themselves, let alone somebody else. So they're actually no one is actually capable of accurately judging another person. The beings who are capable of accurately judging another person, the ones in the non-physical realm, they don't judge. They just see your light. Hmm. What's one of the more surprising stories when you've looked at these pre-birth plannings? Like, why would someone choose to be homeless? Or why, you know, I'm just throwing out examples, but what's one of the 
more surprising choices that you've seen and how it worked in a, a different way than one might imagine? Well, the first story in my first book, Your Soul's Plan, is about a soul who plans to have the AIDS virus. And you would ask, well, why in the world would somebody want to have that experience? There were a number of reasons he wanted to deepen in compassion. But he also was coming in as a teacher to the rest of us. He looked at the state of consciousness on Earth at this point in linear time and said, I feel that there's too much judgment of people who have AIDS. And I want to come in as a teacher to those who are judging and give them the opportunity to put judgment aside and feel compassion in their hearts. And this is why I made that the first story in the first book, because I think we as a society have very harsh judgments of people who fall in certain categories of experience. The person who has AIDS, uh, people who have alcoholism or drug addiction, the homeless. People in those categories, we say things like, that person is a loser, they need to get their act together, they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Judgments around people who have AIDS are particularly harsh. It's things like, he or she must have been promiscuous, he or she must not have used protection. Some people actually believe that AIDS is God's way of punishing homosexuals for being homosexuals. But I would submit to all of your viewers, consider the absurdity of these kinds of judgments in light of what is actually happening here. The souls who plan those kinds of experiences are tremendously courageous. They're taking on huge challenges that most of us wouldn't dare to take on, and they're doing it in service to us so that we have learning and growth opportunities. And so if we could just understand as a society that this is what's really going on, it would change everything. Yeah, it, it always comes back to love and compassion and, and extending the type of compassion that God extended to me in the afterlife, you know, that I woke up and I wanted every evangelical and every sanctimonious person in my family to go, hey, look, you're wrong and I'm wrong as the rebellious person. We're all wrong and we're just as loved. <laughs> you know, like like yeah. that's a message that I think every human being needs is like, we're all a little wrong. We're all lost in our own perception of life the way we see it, but we're all so much more loved than we could ever imagine by that divine light and that divine yeah. force. And that if we can extend that, yeah, that is, that is certainly true. That's one of the main messages in the stories that I put in my books, just how loved we are. Yeah, and to just capture a piece of that is amazing. But I love what you say about judgment and how many souls are incredibly courageous, certainly coming back with disabilities, too. You know, that's a huge, um, a huge moment of courageousness to take on certain moments like that. Well, you know, there, there's a story I like to share uh, about Edgar Casey, who I, I'm sure many of your viewers know. He's now back on the other side, but he was considered, is considered by many people to be the greatest psychic, American psychic medium who ever lived. And apparently late in his career, after he had read for thousands and thousands of people, he was visited by two wealthy women, sisters, who were from New York City. And the sisters said to him, Mr. Casey, we're at the end of our rope in regard to our brother. He lives under a bridge in New York. He drinks too much. We come from a wealthy family, but he long ago squandered his share of the family fortune. We've tried everything we can think of over the years to help him, and nothing has worked. Mr. Casey, can you tell us anything that will help us help our brother? Well, when he heard this, 
Casey did what he always did, which is he went into trance, then he accessed the Akashic Record, and then he said to the two sisters, your brother is the single most highly evolved soul about whom I have ever obtained information, and the three of you planned together before any of you were born for him to do exactly what he's been doing so that the two of you could learn to be more compassionate. Well, this was not exactly the response they were hoping for, but that's how it works. Their brother was there in service to them. I think I remember hearing that story, and I love it, you know, that this happens in families time and time again. The scapegoated one is often the one who is there to really bring great healing to not just that family, but the world to say, hey, I'm telling the truth here. You know, let's bring this out into the light. And so, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You have a line where you said that a soul creates a crisis in order to choose. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Well, you're basically choosing between love and fear. That's what the main choice generally comes down to. Uh, another way to look at it would be you're choosing between the response of the personality and the response of the soul. The personality is often fear-based or ego-based. The soul, of course, is love-based. So when you create th these kinds of crises in your life, which is often by pre-birth plan, you're giving yourself an opportunity for self definition. It's really a, a form of remembering. Before we come into body, we know that our true nature is love. But then we get behind the veil, so to speak. We pick up the traits of the personality. We get caught up in the stories of day-to-day -day life, and we forget that our true nature is love. And so a lot of times, crisis is planned to hopefully trigger a remembrance of that. Yeah, so this moment where we choose though i tapped in when my father passed away I, I communicate with him in the afterlife and i asked how his life review was different from my near-death experience life review and his showed this multitude of choices that he could review that life really had just all kinds of different choices that might have happened around his life and so he was spending time reviewing them have you had mediums tap into that's that moment when people are in the afterlife as well about yeah, review. Yeah. One of the mediums reports that uh, spirit shows her something that looks like an incredibly vast and elaborate flowchart. Well, what is a flowchart? It's a series of decision points. If you do A, then X happens. If you do B, then Y happens. The flowchart that spirit shows her is so vast that it's really beyond human comprehension. And that flowchart represents all the decision points that you're talking about. Yeah, it seems so tiring. I was like, my God, <laughs> that's like, you know, there's endless choices that this choice leads to this. So do you think that people should take away from that, that they should very carefully consider their choices in this life and that, you know, who knows what um, this might lead to and, and make sure that they're coming from the highest place of love? Well, I, I would certainly recommend that, and I agree with that. But at the same time, I, I think it can be counterproductive to put too much pressure on yourself. Uh, you, you don't want to put so much pressure on yourself that you're afraid of making the wrong choice. That would just send you in the opposite direction. Right, right. And to be honest, you know, like I'm, I'm very aware that I'll have another life review, and there have been moments, even as a near-death experiencer, where I'm like, I don't care, I'm making this wrong decision. <laughs> and I'll just have to see it. <laughs> Send, <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> you know that that we are human yeah. you know at times and we do you know yeah. act impulsively and uh, and so yeah they, you can't be paralyzed by that thought but right. at the same time you know there there can be careful consideration of what you want to review and what you want to put out there and what you want you know directionally to to go in particular directions so this I want to come back to the pre-life planning. When you take someone to that place, what are they generally looking for and what's the greatest benefit of going and researching that to, to their lives right now? So if I was to go into that session and I had a block in a certain area, would it be focused mainly on that block? It would be if you wanted it to be. So when I work with a client who's doing a between-life soul regression, I ask them to fill out an extensive intake form. And one of the main purposes of the intake form is for them to list all the questions they have about their lives so that they don't have to try to remember all of them when they're there in front of the council. I can simply prompt them to ask the council those questions. Because my two books, Your Soul's Plan and Your Soul's Gift, are focused on the pre-birth planning of challenges, most of the people who are coming to me have that same focus and they want to know why did I plan this challenge or that challenge or this other challenge. Uh, but there are people, uh, a significant subset of clients who are just on a general spiritual exploration and they're asking all kinds of questions, everything you can possibly think of and the council is happy to answer those as well. Uh, the benefits of doing this again, uh, you understand the deeper spiritual meaning and purpose of your challenges. Uh, if you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else about something, it makes forgiveness a lot easier. It makes gratitude a lot easier. Uh, and it stimulates healing because when you understand the deeper spiritual meaning and purpose, that understanding actually is a large part of the healing. So have you regressed anyone or worked with someone who had a infant near-death experience or a very uh, young near-death experience and they wanted to find out why they had that experience at that age or know more about that experience? I don't off the top of my head recall that there has been anyone looking to understand that. There have been people who had near-death experiences as adults and then they found out that that was part of the plan. But I don't remember anybody having one very early on in life. Yeah, so a lot of people, astrologers, have been contacting me. I think this is new in a lot of uh, conferences that they want to see if people who've had near-death experiences plan them, if it's in their chart. And apparently, like two or three different astrologers have found in my chart that there was a plan, you know, that that near-death experience was a part of my soul's journey. And I believe it because I think death around that time, you know, there was the suicide attempt there was just like this premonition that I might die so it seemed like death was like stretched stretching out in various ways like I might have left the planet I might have had a near-death experience there there were many possibilities but death was a marker at that time and you know uh, what that makes me think of uh, there's a very easy rule of thumb to use to get at whether or not you planned a particular experience before you were born. And the, the rule of thumb is, if you are wondering whether or not you planned it before you were born, you almost certainly did. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, but those huge markers in life, and that certainly is one for probably every person who's had a near-death experience, it's, there's just a before and an after. There's you know, never the same again. And so yeah. it, it seems as if it must be planned. Uh, I think so. Yeah. 
that would be that might be your third book <laughs> just on planning and, and near death experiences. <laughs> well, what are you doing right now? What is your research right now? I want to end with that. Like, what do you think your next focus will be? Uh, you know, I, I want to write about relationships, all different kinds of relationships. Uh, so I, I think that will be the focus, but I don't know specifically where it's going to go. One of the things I've learned from writing two books is that if I start with uh, very firm ideas in mind about what I'm going to write about, invariably the end product is nothing like that at all. So there really isn't much point in trying to tr create that kind of outline at the beginning anyway. Right, right. Well, I think relationships are a point of great stress and joy and confusion for so many people. So I think that, you know, just that subject alone is important and, and yeah. certainly people plan together. And I, I'll just leave you with the story and see if you've heard something like this before. A friend of mine died recently and he was a, a medium and, and a energy worker. And I met him right after my near death experience. So we were friends for a long time. And he always told my friend and I that he was going to die before us and that he would be working with us on the other side and she hated to hear that you know she would just say oh shut up you're not gonna die before us you know and but when he said it it would hit me and i was like oh okay he knows this about his life he knows he's going to die early and he knows that he wants to help both of us from the other side and that knowing is kind of beautiful have you have you seen people who are so clear on their mission that they they know maybe you know how long they're gonna live and what their purpose is while they're here yeah, I've talked to a number of people who are, seem to be very clear that they have, you know, X number of years left. Uh, I have not actually followed up to try to determine whether or not they were accurate. Uh, but the one commonality is the, the level of certainty when they make these statements. There's just an inner knowing like you were just talking about. Yeah, yeah, that... Yeah. Um... Yeah, he brought certain events to our town and to our lives, and he was someone who was very much in touch with the energy of Jesus. You know, you, you talk about the medium who channeled Jesus. He was my friend who very quietly did this and, and brought such love and healing to the people around him. But my last question is, the medium who channels Jesus, you you said that there's a particular beauty and a particular love in, in those channelings. Could you just end with that? Because I've certainly experienced my own healings after the near-death experience with the presence of Jesus. You know, it, it's hard for me to put into words. I, I would have to actually get the book out and read some of the quotes from the channeling sessions. Uh, but the level of wisdom is just extraordinary, and the feeling of love that comes through with the wisdom, they're both there, and they're both equally strong, uh, and it's, it's unlike anything that I, I've really ever seen anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, I do encourage people to get your books, and thank you for talking with me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Right. And for those who are watching, please look for the class on intuition. Daniel and his wife uh, channeled the same guide, and so they're talking about how to open more to your own intuition. And please subscribe and like this video. I look forward to hearing more from you.